0: Hello, and welcome to this Global Exchange webinar, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's media network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Colin Robertson. Today, we look at international views of China and the United States, as well as American attitudes towards China and the rest of the world, as President Joe Biden's foreign policy increasingly takes shape. For Canada, there is no relationship more important than that with the United States. We need situational awareness of American attitudes in order to formulate our own policies as well as to effect- effectively advance our interests especially given our close defense alliance our preferred trade relationship and our partnership in supporting multilateralism and the rules-based order. Former US ambassador David Jacobson used to observe that quote Canadians think they know everything they need to know about the United States and Americans think they know all they need to know about Canada. But as Ambassador Jacobson would then remark, we are both wrong. The US is complicated, like Canada, a big sprawling nation with regional differences. But in the case of the United States, accentuated by deep political polarization as we witnessed in the last election and as we witness in the ongoing struggles with Congress. To lead us in this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Silver. Dr. Silver is a senior researcher at the Pew Research Center. An expert in international survey research, she writes about international public opinion on a variety of topics, including media usage and partisanship in Europe, Chinese public opinion, and global attitudes towards China. Prior to joining the Pew Research Center, she was a foreign affairs research analyst at the US Department of State and in the Office of Opinion Research where she designed and implemented surveys in multiple countries in East Asia. Laura, over to you.
1: Great, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to share our research with you. I'm gonna try and tackle four topics today. I'm gonna start with a discussion of American views of the world and of foreign policy, as well as American views of China. And then I'm gonna move into global views of the United States and global views of China. So a lot of things to tackle. Before I get into it, just a tiny bit of background about who we are as the Pew Research Center. We're a nonprofit fact tank that informs the public about issues, attitudes, and trends shaping the world. And we're nonpartisan and non-advocacy. The data I'm gonna be speaking to you about today comes from 17 countries. One is the United States where we surveyed around 2,600 American adults in February of this year. We did that survey online, but using a method that was nationally representative because we recruited them into our online panel using national random sampling of residential addresses. The other 16 countries in which we surveyed, we did phone surveys. They were conducted from March to May of this year with around 16,000 total respondents. And each one of the 17 surveys I'm speaking to you about today is nationally representative. Happy to get into methodology in the Q&A should that be of interest. So I'm gonna start with a discussion of American views on foreign engagement broadly. The first thing I wanna point out is that when it comes to whether or not people think it's important for the US to be respected by other countries around the world, there's widespread agreement that it is important. 87% of Americans think that it's either very or somewhat important to be respected by other countries. And this is relatively consistent across both Republicans and Democrats. We see slightly more Democrats say it's very important than Republicans, 54% compared to 46%. But generally speaking, there's bipartisan agreement that international respect is important. There's also a shared sense among Americans that it's important for America to play a shared leadership role in the world rather than being either the single world leader or to not play any leadership role at all. Among the 78% of Americans who agree that shared leadership is important, 48% said that the U.S. should be about as active as other leading nations, while 29% say that the U.S. should be the most active of leading nations. But here the agreement among Americans largely stops. When it comes to issues, for example, about foreign policy and whether the US either should take into account the interests of its allies, even if it means making compromises with them, or if the US should follow its own national interests, even when its allies strongly disagree, we start to see major partisan differences. Among Republicans, for example, half say that the US should follow its own national interests, even when its allies strongly disagree, while 80% of Democrats say the opposite, that taking into, the, taking into account the interests of allies is important even if it means making compromises. We see divisions as well when it comes to whether or not, or how the US should position its role in world affairs, whether it's better for the future of our country to be active in world affairs, or whether we should pay less attention to problems overseas and concentrate on problems here at home. Around half of Americans take each position but around two thirds of Democrats think it's best for the future of the country to be active in world affairs. while about two thirds of Republicans say the opposite that paying less attention to problems overseas and concentrating on problems here at home is the better strategy. And there are pretty clear differences among Americans too about whether or not many of the problems facing our country can be solved by working with other countries or few of the problems facing our country can be solved working with other countries. Around half of Americans say that many of the problems of our country can be solved working with others, 54% overall, but among Democrats, it's a large majority and among Republicans, a majority think that few problems can be solved working with other countries. Having gone through kind of these overarching views of foreign policy that Americans have, what are their actual foreign policy priorities? We asked about 20 specific issues, First, what we wanted to understand was which priorities should be top priorities as long-range foreign policy goals. And when it comes to things that are most important to Americans writ large, we see that protecting the jobs of American workers, taking measures to protect the US from terrorist attacks, and reducing the spread of infectious disease are things that around seven in 10 Americans or more say are important, including majorities of both Republicans and Democrats. Two thirds also say that preventing the spread of weapons of mass destruction is important. But from here, we start to see more, more um, partisan differences. For example, a large majority of Republicans think that maintaining the US military advantage over all other countries should be a top foreign policy priority, while only 30% of Democrats agree. The differences are even starker when it comes to things like dealing with global climate change. 70% of Republicans think this should be a top, pri- uh, I'm sorry, 70% of Democrats think this should be a top foreign policy priority, compared to 14% of Republicans. You'll note when it comes to differences uh, among partisans about limiting the power and influence of China or limiting the power and influence of Russia, that the differences can be quite pronounced. Overall, more Americans in general say limiting the power and influence of China is important than say the same of Russia, but the partisan difference between these two flips and I'll I'll return to this in a few moments when I talk more about American views of China. A few, other goal, a few other policy priorities that have major partisan differences include reducing illegal immigration into the US, which is a um, top, uh, top priority of around two thirds of Republicans, but only 16% of Democrats agree. And then we also see partisan differences when it comes to things like uh, promoting human rights, promoting democracy and aiding refugees fleeing violence around the world, all of which are more democratic priorities. But switching gears a little bit, I want to talk specifically about American views of China. One thing that's important to note when it comes to views of China is that negative views of China have gone up quite substantially in the United States. We use a feeling thermometer to measure views towards China um, in the United States, at least this year. And that means that we asked people on a scale from zero, which is the coldest rating, to 100, which is the warmest rating, where would they place their feelings towards China. We found that 47% of people gave China a score of less than 25, and another 20% gave China a score of less than 50, so 67% fell in the bottom half of the thermometer. 20% rated China as exactly a 50 and only 11% gave it a score in the top half of the thermometer. This is a major increase in negative views since from 2018, when only 23% of people gave China kind of this most negative score. And when it comes to the percentage of people giving China actually a zero on the rating from 0 to 100, we found it increased from 7% to around a quarter of people between 2018 and 2021. It's also interesting to note that when it comes to negative views of China, this is a substantial change since 2018, whereas views towards Japan, India, and North Korea did not shift over the same time period. So Americans haven't broadly become more negative towards all foreign countries or all foreign countries, even in the Asia Pacific region, but they've become much more negative towards China. So who has negative feelings towards China and how does it differ across age groups within the United States? One thing we've seen relatively consistently is that older people tend to be more negative towards China than younger ones. There are very few age-related differences, however, I'm sorry, there are very few education-related differences, however, People who have graduated college or have a bachelor's degree or more are about as unlikely or about as likely to have unfavorable views towards China as those who have less schooling. We do see partisan differences though and we tend to see partisan differences on almost everything when it comes to attitudes towards China in the United States. Generally speaking, Republicans tend to be much colder towards China than Democrats. And this is particularly true among conservative Republicans compared to moderate or liberal Republicans. You can see this same pattern come out when it comes to partnership competitor status or enemy. We asked on balance for Americans whether or not they think of China as a partner, which 9% do, as a competitor, which 55% do, or as an enemy, which 34% do. But when it comes to the partisan breakdown here, more than half of Republicans think of China as an enemy, whereas many fewer Democrats say the same, only 20%. Democrats, for their part, are both slightly more likely to describe China as a partner, though still a small minority, um, and most Democrats describe China as a competitor. Returning to this question I talked about earlier about whether or not limiting China's power and influence should be a top foreign policy priority, we saw that over time from 2018 to 2021, at the same time that negative views towards China have increased, so too has the sense that it's important to limit China's power and influence. And this has risen both among the population as a whole from 32% who say it's a top foreign policy priority to 48%, but also among both Republicans and Democrats though more sharply among Republicans. Whereas 39% thought it was a top priority in 2018, today 63% say the same. This also makes limiting the power and influence of China one of the top five priorities among the 20 that we tested for Republicans, whereas it's the 12th priority for Democrats. In fact, Democrats are more likely to say it's important to limit the power and influence of Russia than they are to say the same of China, whereas the opposite is true when it comes to Republicans. So that was a lot of information about American views of China. We'll return to this a tiny bit when I talk towards the end of this presentation about global views of China, but suffice it to say that when it comes to views of China, there's a widespread, pattern across most of the places that we surveyed to say that negative views of China have gone up and to view China increasingly as a threat. Before I turn to that, though, I want to talk a little bit about America's global image. We learned at the beginning that Americans care about whether or not America is respected internationally, but to what degree is the U.S. respected internationally? We answer this with our survey from 16 other publics outside of the U.S. for this year. And the overall takeaway is that when it comes to America's international image, both confidence in the U.S. president to do the right thing regarding world affairs and favorability of the United States, we see a major increase um, from last year. Whereas toward the end of the Trump presidency, very few had confidence in the U.S. president to do the right thing in world affairs, this has changed significantly. Um, I'm reporting numbers that are medians based on 12 countries that we surveyed in both 2020 and 2021. But in 2020, 17% had confidence in the US president, and today that's 75% for a massive uptick. In fact, this returns confidence in the US president broadly to around the levels where it was towards the end of the Obama administration. So essentially, almost a full rebound to where we were prior to the four years of the Trump administration. Favorable views of the United States have also shifted significantly. 34% had a favorable view of America at the end of the Trump presidency. And today around two thirds say the same. In fact, in some of the countries that we've surveyed um, consistently over time since 2000, like France, Germany, Japan, and Italy, We saw roughly 30 percentage point increases just this past year in favorable views of the United States. And again, this puts kind of favorable views of the US now at roughly the um, spot that they were when we were surveying at the end of the Obama administration. And also this is one of the steepest recoveries that we've seen in our um, decades, two decades of polling. The most comparable shift in the past was the one from the end of the Bush administration to the beginning of the Obama administration. In terms of juxtaposing confidence in the US president in 2020 with 2021, the difference is clearest in Sweden where 15% of people had confidence in Trump to do the right thing and 85% have confidence in Biden to do the right thing regarding world affairs for a difference of 70 percentage points. The smallest difference we see in terms of the countries where we surveyed in both 2020 and 2021 is in Greece and it's still a whopping 42 percentage points. So this is a major shift that we see in terms of views of the US. One of the reasons that we see confidence in President Biden having gone up so much is related to the personal leadership traits that people ascribe to him. We asked a series of adjectives about both President Trump in 2017 and President Biden in 2021. And again, these are median numbers, but when it came to President Trump's being um, seen as well-qualified, only 16% of people felt that he was compared with 77% who say the same of Biden. In contrast, when it came to being viewed as arrogant or dangerous, large majority said this of Trump and very few say the same of Biden. On the attribute that most people ascribe to Trump um, that was positive, 46% saw him as a strong leader. And even on this one, Biden outpaces him with 62% considering Biden to be a strong leader. Biden's policies are also broadly, uh, broadly popular when it comes to things like rejoining the WHO or rejoining the climate Paris changing, uh, uh, Paris climate change agreement. But this doesn't mean that everyone necessarily views the United States as responsibly taking into account the interests of countries like theirs when making international policy decisions. This is a question we've asked over time and we find that 66% of Canadians, for example, and a median of 67% across the 16 countries where we surveyed say that the US doesn't really take into account the interests of um, countries like theirs when making international policy decisions. We see even larger majorities in places like Sweden and New Zealand taking this position at 85% respectively. In fact, outside of Greece and Germany, typically we don't see more than half saying that the U.S. takes into account the interests of countries like theirs very much at all. U.S. image is also somewhat impacted by whether or not people think that the U.S. is a good example for other countries to follow when it comes to democracy. We asked a question specifically that asked whether or not democracy in the US is currently a good example for other countries to follow, used to be a good example, but has not been in recent years or has never been a good example for other countries to follow. And across many of the places that we surveyed, we find that half or more tend to say that the US used to be a good example, but has not been in recent years. And in fact, in very few publics, do we see more than around one in five say that the US is currently a good democratic example to follow. When it comes to Canadian opinion, for example, 69% think that the U.S. used to be a good example, but hasn't been in recent years, and 14% say it was never a good example, while 14% also say it's currently a good example. So relatively mixed when it comes to those endpoints, but generally speaking, around 7 in 10 Canadians don't see the U.S. currently as a good example, even if it used to be. Here are the Asia-Pacific numbers as well, which are even a bit starker where we see around two thirds of most of the people across the Asia Pacific, saying the US used to be a good example, but hasn't been in recent years. The last topic I wanna tackle is the idea of China's image. So I mentioned that the US's image has kind of rebounded over the past year. What I didn't mention was that last year, global views of both the US and China were at or near kind of historic lows. Most people had an unfavorable view of both countries. Most people had very limited confidence in both leaders, President Xi and President Trump, And most people thought that both countries were doing a terrible job handling the COVID pandemic. Whereas much of the US image has changed over this time period, China's hasn't. Broadly speaking, across the 17 publics that we surveyed, because now the United States is included, we see that most people have a negative view of China. A median of 69% have an unfavorable view compared to a median of 27% who have a favorable view. In Canada, for example, around three quarters of people have an unfavorable view of China and the same, as I mentioned before, is true in the United States. The most negative views come in Japan, where 88% of people have a negative view of China, and the most positive come from Singapore. It's the only place where we see a clear majority of people have a favorable view of China. It is important to note when thinking about Singapore, though, that there are major differences among those of um, different self-described ethnicities. Those who self-identify as Chinese in Singapore are much more likely to have a favorable view of China, whereas those who identify as ethnic Malays or ethnic Indians tend to be much more negative. When it comes to the historic change that we've seen in terms of views, when it comes to Canada, much of this uh, negative uptick seems to have come largely after the bilateral frictions that came from the arrest of the Huawei executive. Um, Negative views in in Canada shot up around 20 percentage points at that point and have hovered at or near historic highs since. Across most of the Asia-Pacific too, we see negative views are at or near historic highs. In Japan, this isn't the case, although they're the most negative public towards China in general, the historic highs we saw in Japan were largely around the Senkaku and Diaoyu um, Islands issue a few years ago. In Australia though, much like Canada, following a bilateral friction largely related to what's now a kind of a a ban on um, beef following Australia's desire to investigate the origins of the COVID outbreak, we saw negative views tick up 24 percentage points in a single year and they've stayed near this historic high. Across most of Europe too, we see that negative views have risen and have largely stayed high across almost all of the places that we survey. We see majority unfavorable opinion in almost every place with the slight exception of Greece. Some of this is tied to a general sense that the government of China does not respect the personal freedoms of its people. We've been asking this question over time and we see that even since 2018, when already large majorities tended to say that this was true, it's increased substantially since. So in Italy, for example, in 2018, 71% said the government of China doesn't respect the personal freedoms of its people and it's increased to 89 percentage points this year for a difference of 18 percentage points. Even in Singapore, the country least likely to say that the government of China does not respect the personal freedoms of its people, we still see that 60% take this view. So there's a widespread sense and an increasing sense that the government of China does not respect the personal freedoms of its people. There's also very limited confidence in Chinese President Xi to do the right thing regarding world affairs. Around eight and 10 in many of the places we surveyed, including in both the US and Canada, have no confidence in him. And an overall median of 77% take this view. The one kind of outstanding country that has a different view is Singapore, where 70% have confidence in President Xi. But again, it has some of this um, kind of ethnic um, demographic difference that I mentioned before. With um, the remaining couple of minutes, I just wanna talk a tiny bit about the juxtaposition of the US and China and how people view their relationships. One of the things we wanted to understand is whether or not people think that it's more important for their nation to have strong economic ties with the US or with China. And outside of Singapore and to a lesser extent New Zealand where views were largely tied, we see that large majorities in most places think it's more important for their nation to have strong economic ties with the US than with China. And in fact, in the four countries for which we have trend data, this is an ascendant uh, preference. In Canada, for example, where 73% felt like it was more important for their country to have strong economic ties with the US in 2015, that numbers risen to 87% in 2021. It's even more clear cut in places like Australia and South Korea, where more actually preferred close relations with China in 2015 and that's fully reversed. And today a majority in both places prefer closer economic ties with the US. But this doesn't mean that everything is necessarily clear cut when it comes to how to approach relations with China. A question that we asked, which was a forced choice question was whether or not we should try to promote human rights in China, even if it harms economic relations with China or prioritize strengthening economic relations with China, even if it means not addressing human rights issues. In the US, New Zealand, and Australia, a large majority think that we should try to promote human rights in China. There's more middling sentiment around this in, in Japan and Taiwan, and then a majority in both Singapore and South Korea say the opposite, that prioritizing strengthening economic relations with China, it should be prioritized even if it means not addressing human rights issues suggesting that there isn't necessarily a clear cut path with regard to how we approach relations with China across the Asia Pacific region, among other, among other places and issues.
0: Laura, thanks for that. Uh, you've uh, just uh, demonstrated why throughout my career, I've always looked to Pew as the gold standard for looking at attitudes, both in the United States and the world. And certainly during my posting in Washington, I used to make regular visits pilgrimages, I call them, to see the late Andy Kohat, who you'd perhaps met before you, uh, yeah. uh, who was, who is really the, the great source of information on attitudes in the United States. So thank you very much for that uh, excellent presentation, which I'll just tell those who are watching or listening, we will make available on the website. Um, I'm going to start off with a, a question on, uh, on China. Uh, you know, the democracy's distrust of China, as you point out, really has risen, uh, and you pointed to, in the case of Australia, uh, after they called for, I think, quite legitimately, an investigation of, of where wow. the uh, pandemic, how it began and started, and China then took sanctions, and then in the case of Canada, well, you mentioned Meng Zhou I think probably it had a lot to, more to do with the Chinese seizing the, the two Michaels, Michaels uh, Michael Kovrig yeah. and Michael Spaver as hostages. Canadians certainly feel strong on that. So. I was gonna say, is is this distrust of China a culmination of events or is there particular factors? I guess you can read it both ways in the case of Australia and Canada, but what's your sense on that?
1: It's such a good question and we don't have causal data that can get at this. But I think what some of these examples indicate is that it likely differs based on country to some degree. If there's specific bilateral frictions like these these two instances, or in the case of the US, the trade war, the trade war seems to have been roughly when negative views of China really ticked up precipitously in the United States and then stayed relatively high, so starting in 2018. Um, So specific bilateral events can certainly play a role. And I imagine that in many instances that's likely to be dominant because that'll be what's reflected in the country's news system itself. But there are definitely other factors that we see are relatively more global. For example, people who think that China's done a poor job handling COVID-19 tend to have more negative views of China People who think that China doesn't respect the personal freedoms of its people tend to have more negative views. And people who think current economic relations are bad also tend to have more negative views. So there's certainly some kind of cross-country patterns that we see, but there are also definitely these specific trigger points that do seem to resonate.
0: Um, Singapore was a bit of an outlier. Is that, Do you think that's simply ethnicity, or is that sort of long-term perspective? Singapore has always been probably closer to China, uh, Lee Kuan Yu and, and their leadership has is, is, you know, is, is, is argued that, the I think quite accurately, that the West needed to accommodate a rising China. So why is Singapore, and I know you spend a lot of time looking at East Asia attitudes.
1: Singapore is a great question and also one of the hardest for us to disentangle in these data because it's the single year of data we have from Singapore. I will say that when you look at publicly available polling coming from Singapore, there's a slight decrease in terms of positive attitudes towards China coming out of other polling outfits, but it's much less extreme than in many places, perhaps because of the affinity that you mentioned historically. There's also current cultural affinity. I think some is ethnicity, some is the bilateral relationship between those two powers, but we're going to have to monitor it going forward because we only have this one year of data. So hard to see change over time with just one data point.
0: Good. Well, encouragement for you to continue your for research sure. in your specialty area of East Asia. Now, you, you pointed out, and this came through, that there was a real I mean, almost complete turnabout in um, global attitudes towards the United States with the shift from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. You know, quite remarkable how confidence and trust of the United States has, has returned. Um, it, in the case of China then, where we've had a couple of incidents, particularly in the case of Canada, as I pointed out, the two Michaels, and in Australia, uh, around is if, if if things were to shift, do you think the 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 attitudes would shift back to perhaps slightly more positive to China, or is this something that's likely to endure for the longer time um, in terms of the attitude towards China because it 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 limits the room for for uh, our 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 leadership to to try and find. Uh, accommodation or try and find areas of cooperation with China on things like pandemic or climate if the public is dead against because of this distrust factor. So I'm just interested in what your perspective is on that.
1: It's a great question. In America, where we have some long-term trends and a little bit more kind of country-specific expertise, we've seen that views of China tend to fluctuate somewhat. Right now, we're at a sustained and negative high, But historically in the United States, for example, around our domestic presidential elections, we've seen negative views of China go up substantially and then kind of fall when China falls back out of the media um, attention. We tend to campaign in the United States somewhat on the idea that China is a bugaboo or to have Republicans and Democrats both attack China and talk about who will be tougher on China. And this type of messaging likely affects Americans and likely lead people to have more negative views. So I think when the media has a relatively sustained campaign about a specific issue that's salient for the public, in the case of Canada, perhaps the two Michaels, in the case of Australia, perhaps the um, kind of bilateral trade issues that they're having related to, as you said, a quite legitimate request for an investigation, this type of thing will likely keep negative opinion high. Other things can displace it though. Um, If China substantially changes their international behavior, you could potentially see opinion following China's also making large strides on some issues, including pandemic uh, relief to foreign countries. They're giving uh, obviously large quantities of vaccines and during earlier parts of the pandemic, they donated ventilators or masks. Depending on the country, this could definitely be salient for people. And so it's something that we're gonna keep monitoring going forward.
0: Have you done any polling in Africa? Because that's one area where China really has made uh, a a centered a lot of attention, and as you pointed out, giving aid, uh, infrastructure building. Any sense on the attitudes in Africa towards China?
1: Yeah, the last time unfortunately that we were able to pull in any of the African countries that we typically go to was 2019. The reason for this is that we tend to pull in more developing contexts using face-to-face methodology where we send a survey researcher door-to-door to ask people questions. We deemed this to be unsafe for respondents and interviewers alike during the context of the pandemic. And so unfortunately we've halted all of our face-to-face research and are only doing research via phone or um, online at this point. We hope to resume soon. I don't think, uh, unfortunately that the, we kind of talk about our surveys in years and waves. I don't think the 2022 global attitudes survey is likely to include any of the African countries we've typically gone to. Um, speaking with local vendors about safety in places like South Africa, it does not seem like now is the time. Um, We definitely take safety as the most important thing. That said, historically, we have seen attitudes towards China be relatively more favorable in parts of sub-Saharan Africa and to some degree in areas of Latin America. And as you mentioned, with China taking such active strides um, on humanitarian relief related to the pandemic, I would be interested to see whether or not that's resonated. And I think there's definitely a chance that it has.
0: Laura, you mentioned a minute ago that, that the media plays a big role in sort of salience of issues. How do you, how do you describe the media now? In the old days that we you know, watched the three television stations and read certain uh, newspapers, the uh, New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, that kind of thing. But you know, that, that whole media landscape has shifted. And I know that the Pew Research Center has also done look at, at media and, and how people draw from it. So how do you describe media?
1: It's a good question. And so we don't necessarily describe the media in one particular way with the recognition that plenty of Americans don't go to any of these mainstream sources. And in fact, many Americans opt out of news altogether. Um, But one thing we have looked at is where people get their information. Um, We did a, a recent blog post, for example, where we quantified where people got their information and then their views of foreign policy. We're not in the business of describing an outlet as left-leaning or right-leaning. However, we can look at the audience of each of the outlets. And so what we did was we, across all of the news sources that we asked about, which included kind of some of the non-traditional sources, for example, um, talk radio, which in the United States tends to lean extremely towards the right, um, but also some online blogs and other sources. We essentially looked at people who only get their news from places with audiences that are left-leaning or audiences that are right-leaning and compared them to people who got news from kind of the mix of the spectrum. And what we found specifically with regard to views of China is that people who get their news from kind of these echo chambers, so Republicans who get right-leaning news and Democrats who get left-leaning news are much more likely to have negative views of China. It actually works on both sides. People who are kind of in these echo chambers among Democrats who largely turn in this case to the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN and MSNBC all of which have more left-leaning audiences. They tend to be more negative towards China than Democrats writ large, who consume kind of um, a more balanced mix of information. And it's particularly true among Republicans who largely consume either Fox News or talk radio.
0: Interesting. Um, I wanna shift to the United States again. And your polling suggested that younger people in democracies, Europe, Canada, Probably elsewhere have a more negative view generally towards the United States than their parents or grandparents. Is this just an age thing? You know, certainly when I was young, it was fashionable to to always be critical of the United States. But as you get older and you appreciate, as as your polling points out, the importance of the United States to our economy and our defense and security, perhaps attitudes shift. So, what what's your read on on younger people? Is this simply Uh, because I guess you've looked at this over time, do people shift in attitudes as they get older?
1: Interestingly, historically, we've mostly seen that younger people tend to have more positive views of the United States. And we're not seeing that now, in part, because what we're ultimately seeing is that younger people tend to have way less confidence in the US president than older people. This was particularly true in the Trump era, but it's also somewhat true in the Biden era, Younger people also tend to have more critical views of America as a democratic model than older people. Um, Perhaps some of this is that for the recent years, America's democracy hasn't necessarily looked particularly functional to to the um, people looking at us from overseas. And so younger people have largely come of age in an era where America's leadership hasn't necessarily been respected um, or its behavior on the international stage has been seen more critically. So I think some of that likely plays a role That said, younger people do tend to be more positive, broadly defined towards multilateralism and towards um, uh, working cooperatively internationally, as well as more likely to be focused on international problems, including climate change. So there is a recognition that it's important to work together at least internationally and perhaps to cooperate with the United States depending on the issue.
0: Now, again, looking at the polling, it would seem to me that based on just what you've said and and what you showed us that uh, Joe Biden, who's put big emphasis on America's back, America's going to be supportive of the, of the Alliance generally and also of, of multilateralism and the rules-based order. Uh, as I looked at that, for the, certainly the first few slides the United States, looking at themselves, want to be seen to be kind of a positive force in the world. That would seem to be give support uh, for President Biden in his efforts to, again, reassert American leadership for rules-based order, for multilateralism, and for collective security and the alliance. Is that, uh, is that a fair interpretation?
1: I think that's definitely fair. And I think it's fair to say that so far, things are going relatively well with regard to Joe Biden's approach. America is much more respected now than it was under the Trump era. But I, I think it's too soon to declare kind of a, a victory in this front. We'll see how things progress and we'll keep monitoring at SAP p Research Center because he has a lot of things that he'd like to accomplish. And I think that there could be a potential honeymoon phase if those accomplishments aren't seen to come to fruition by publics around the world.
0: He's got a big legislative agenda, it's, it's the infrastructure program, the Build Back Better, family, you know, basically a, a new New Deal. Would Does any of the, the support for him and what he's trying to do internationally and reassert American leadership and thus support for America, does that transcend into his efforts domestically to make significant change on, on that broad agenda uh, that he's, uh, and particularly that legislative agenda with the divided Congress, does that help him at all with, with Congress and getting these things through?
1: It's a good question and one I'm not necessarily well poised to speak to because when it comes to foreign policy there are definitely partisan divisions, but when it comes to domestic policy, their um, partisan divisions are significantly larger. So on foreign policy issues, we talked about towards at the beginning, generally speaking, more Americans are in favor of working with allies, more Americans are kind of supportive of taking a shared leadership role. And in general, Americans are also supportive of some of these initiatives like rejoining the WHO um, and rejoining the Paris Climate Change Agreement but especially those two latter ones have very large domestic divisions. Republicans tend to be against these things. Democrats tend to be widely for them. And so he has a difficult path going forward because in some ways he almost has two countries that he has to govern concurrently. Um, There are very, very few bilateral foreign policy issues. And in fact, one of the only ones that we've seen interestingly is the issue of promoting human rights in China might sound counterintuitive, but it's one of the few areas where we see bipartisan support in part because Democrats tend to be more supportive of human rights issues writ large. Um, I'm sorry, Democrats tend to be more supportive of that. Whereas Republicans tend to be more supportive of challenging China writ large and where the two areas seem to meet is challenging China on human rights issues.
0: Interesting, all right, before I move to Charlotte who's gonna bring the audience questions and I'm gonna ask you a last question And it's going to pertains to your work on on South and and East Asia. Uh, My sense is that they want the U.S. security umbrella, but they also want the prosperity that comes with the relationship with China. I think that's part of what Singapore is about. Um, For now, they bridge. But when push comes to shove, where will they come down, especially as the United States seems to be moving back in? We've got the Quad. We've got perhaps at some point uh, re-interest in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but wh- where where do you think, because you've been studying, uh, and, and as, I guess it's Asia is also, it, you can't generalize, there's big variations there as well.
1: Yeah, I think that is exactly how I would answer the question, is that it's really hard to generalize. I think when it comes <laughs> to some places, for example, Japan and maybe Taiwan, though Taiwan is obviously a special case for so many reasons, because the US relationship with Taiwan is so complicated. But when it comes to some places and especially Australia and New Zealand now who are obviously part of the Five Eyes along with Canada and the US, we see some preference for a strong relationship with the United States almost as a counterbalance to China. But that's not necessarily a universal preference. And even places like South Korea, where we saw when I talked about it earlier, that there's a wide preference for economic relations with the US over China. This doesn't mean that they're willing to forego close economic relations with China. When it came to promoting human rights in China, for example, South Koreans said, let's leave that aside and promote um, closer economic ties over this kind of potential challenge. And so in places like South Korea, which are also close allies of the United States, it's not clear that the public is necessarily on board for rocking the boat. And many publics, I think, would like to kind of straddle the fence and have close relations and ties with both countries to the degree possible.
0: So hedging remains. uh... Probably the preferred option for now. All right, thank you, Laura. Well, Hard to uh, Charlotte, <laughs> let me turn to you. <laughs> no, exactly. No, not at all. I think it's it's prudent. It's That's what you have to do in that region. Charlotte, yeah. questions from audience.
2: Thanks, Colin, and thanks, Laura, for your presentation. We are going to stay on the topic of China. Uh, Queen Marshek says that it doesn't seem very likely that China will improve its human rights record or change its more nationalistic uh, posture. Uh, given these realities, is there anything that China can do to improve its image? Or maybe, and I will add my own, um, my own question to this, is, is there anything that the US can do to kind of make the public and the audience understand that maybe China, despite like different um, values and, and attitudes, uh, can be a, a partner on the international stage? It's a really good question. I think
1: that likely the most, the tact China can take that might have the most impact on publics would be focusing on the things that it's doing extremely well. So aid tends to be well received in places where people are aware of it. Um, The pandemic-related aid I think is a good one. Um, China's also seen in our surveys, for example, as doing better at handling the COVID-19 pandemic than the United States. In almost every country, the sole exception being Japan, this is the case. People generally think that China has dealt better with this particular emergency than the United States. And emphasizing that, emphasizing the competence that that took as well as the kind of strength of government could be popular in particularly places wrestling with this issue themselves, which at this point quite honestly is most of the world, but especially parts of East Asia that are looking to kind of increase their vaccination campaigns relatively rapidly um, and have also taken relatively kind of firm stances against COVID using lockdowns and things that China did so effectively. That type of messaging could be successful. China has also clearly engaged in recent years on its own kind of soft power campaign internationally, opening Confucius centers, trying to promote itself through all sorts of media engagement, opening different Chinese news outlets abroad. So far, I would say the academic research tends to suggest that this hasn't really broken through. Um, It's not something that most people in foreign countries are necessarily exposed to or necessarily receptive to, but this type of strategy and generally influencing the media in other countries, particularly if you can generate more positive coverage may play some role. In the US, we did a, we asked a question that we didn't ask in other countries, which was specifically about what people think about when they think about China, and they could type anything. It was the online survey, as I mentioned, and we found that the top two issues that Americans think about when it comes to China, and again, they could say anything. They could say pandas. They could say dumplings. They could say great wall. The top two issues were human rights issues and economic issues, so kind of changing that so that the top issues people think about are things on which China is more positive would likely have some sort of positive influence.
2: From your survey work, does it seem that there are any particular driver of negative sentiments about China beyond the issue of human rights, like cyber, international trade policy behaviors, or the South China Sea?
1: All good questions. We have more data about it in the United States than anywhere else. And in the United States, it seems like human rights and the economy tend to be key drivers. We've also asked about specific problems in the US and Chinese bilateral relationship. And while cyber attacks do come up, many of them are also economic. um, And we've also found an increasing sense that China's human rights policies are a problem for the US. In contrast, very few Americans care very deeply about China's relationship with Hong Kong or with Taiwan. We don't have those exact questions in other countries. So more what we know is that among the other countries that we've surveyed, There are definitely factors including um, limited confidence in the leadership in China, the sense that economic relations are not necessarily going well, depending on the particular country, as well as the poor handling of the COVID pandemic.
0: Thanks, Charlotte. Any further questions?
2: Yeah, I, I'm gonna group uh, two together. Uh, so is there any evidence that reluctance among East Asian populations to opt for the US model over the Chinese one stems for uncertainty about the durability and reliability of the USA's commitment to the security of China's neighbor? And I'd like to attach um, Another question that will be quicker to answer is that do you have any specific information on the Filipinos views of the United States?
1: Um, I'll tackle the second one first. So we haven't been able to pull in the Philippines since 2019 for the same reasons that we haven't been able to poll in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we pull in the Philippines using face-to-face methods and it's deemed unsafe. That said, Filipino's views towards the United States in my history of looking at Filipino public opinion um, has almost looked like a flat line at the top of the graphic. We tend to see basically Almost every person in the Philippines has a positive view of the U.S. and it's stayed relatively consistent for the last close to two decades or more. Um, I don't know if that's shifted since 2019. There's definitely the possibility that it could have. um, But generally speaking, Filipino views towards the U.S. are extremely positive and stay positive, even while confidence in the president does wax and wane. Uh, But the affinity between the Philippines and the U.S. tends to be quite high. In terms of the reluctance among East Asian publics to opt out for the US model over the Chinese one and kind of the perceptions about whether there's a durable and reliable commitment from the US to East Asia. We have specifically on this survey asked whether or not the US is seen as a reliable partner and we'll be reporting on this going forward more. Um, Generally speaking, this is a huge view or a huge driver of views of the United States. Um, The idea that the U.S. takes other countries' interests into account and that the U.S. is reliable or not definitely impacts views. It varies a little bit country to country, but regardless of the country, those two things tend to predict views of the U.S. So to the degree that people have positive views, they tend to find these things are true, that the U.S. is reliable and that the U.S. takes their interests into account, and the opposite is also true. So I definitely think that U.S. reliability and commitment to the region is something that people are factoring into their assessments.
2: So let's go back to the perception of China. Do you think that there is any reason to think that China will change its behavior because of the negative image po- uh, that you pulled?
1: I would not expect this. Uh, we do get a fair bit of attention in China when we release our reports. Um, typically, the things that are promoted most in China tend to be the most favorable towards China. For example, um, we got a lot of press coverage this year about how China is seen as handling the global pandemic better than the U.S., which is absolutely true. Last year, we also got some coverage about how President Xi was more trusted internationally than President Trump, also true. The rest of the findings are often left aside um, in kind of the Chinese media reporting of our findings. Um, And in fact, sometimes they are criticized. And one of the criticisms is extremely valid, um, which is that we're not polling in some of the places that are typically most sympathetic to China, including Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, We want to be polling in those places, and we just don't have data to speak to. But when we release a report from these 17 publics, for example, about negative views of China, there are many, many countries left unpolled that may feel differently. Um, We hope to have more global coverage going forward. It's just unfortunately not methodologically or um, in terms of the pandemic uh, feasibility right now.
2: There has been a recent article in Foreign Affairs that presents the argument that the United States should warm their uh, the relationship with uh, Russia in order to counter China. Uh, from the data that you have, how do you think this would resonate with American audiences?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think that would be an intensely partisan issue. So Russia, um, Russia at this point is seen significantly more favorably by Republicans than by Democrats. Democrats, when you ask the top threat um, among all countries or groups in the world are much more likely to name Russia than China. The opposite is true among Republicans. And in fact, President Trump's overtures towards Russia were broadly unpopular among Democrats. So I think that that would be a difficult sell for the full American public. I think it would resonate quite well with half the American public, but unless it were messaged extremely Mm -hmm. successfully, I don't see Democrats going along with that at all.
0: Laura, I'm gonna intrude and ask a question, part follow up to some of the other ones that have been asked. Do you think that there's sufficient public support in the democracies for a united front to take China to task on issues like human rights, which you pointed out there's a lot of strong support of and some of its coercive trade actions, and obviously it's some of its aggressive behavior with its neighbors, particularly in the South China Sea and with India and with Taiwan and what they've done in Hong Kong and Do you think the the public is ready to let their leaders join with the US in taking action, perhaps even sanctions against China?
1: Yeah, I think it would depend what the actions look like um, and what the cost of the sanctions, for example, would be. The United States um, example and kind of our trade war with China suggests that the sanctions, while broadly unpopular, weren't seen to have hurt the average person. They were seen to have hurt the country economically but again, in the United States, this was massively partisan. I'd be curious how it would re- register in other countries that perhaps have lef- less of a polarization um, politically than we do, as well as which industries it specifically hurt if, they, if we did go kind of along this sanctions track. I think in some places there's definitely a sense that the human rights issues are of such a magnitude that they're important to be dealt with. Um, and you can think of some places like the UK, for example, where I do believe that much of the public thinks that they have an obligation to Hong Kong in some way, shape or form because of the previous colonial history. Um, That could play a role. We did focus groups where this came up, for example, that we don't have polling data to speak to it. Um, In other places like Canada um, with the two Michaels or with Sweden where the bookseller incident in Hong Kong, um, the bookseller was a a Swedish national, I believe. Um, There are definitely some places where the issues have maybe risen to the point that the public would at least be willing to entertain strong measures, whether or not they could be sustained for long would probably depend on the level of economic pain inflicted on ordinary civilians. Hmm.
0: Yes, that makes sense because inevitably sanctions are a tax on the people in the country who have to often pay the price as we've learned when we put sanctions particularly on agricultural goods, things like that that hurt our farmers. Charlotte, any further questions?
2: China has been arguing that uh, the United States has been declining uh, and that China is rising. Uh, have you seen anything say, that would suggest that uh, the rest of Asia is buying into this? And since we're on the topic of the decline of the American empire, uh, do you have any specific information or poll results regarding the American performance in the South China Sea?
1: Great, good questions. In terms of the US being seen as ascendant versus descendant, we haven't asked this specific question, I don't believe, since 2019, but at that point, what we asked was whether or not the US, um, its influence has grown over the past 10 years, has weakened, or has stayed about the same. And what we tended to see in most places, including the Asia Pacific, was not that the US was seen as declining, but that it was seen as a status quo power. Um, the in contrast, though, most places thought that China was ascendant. That was a wide, widely held view. Um, we also asked about Germany, India, and maybe another country, but those are the two I'm, I'm remembering offhand since it's been a few years. And generally speaking, more people saw China as an ascendant power than India. Um, and gen- in terms of Germany, people also saw that one as ascendant, but at a less um, less than they did uh, uh, when it came to China. China was, I I believe a median of around 70% said China was ascendant and a median of around 50% said the US was status quo power. Um, We also found that the UK was seen as declining. That is one of the other ones we asked about. So yes, there is some sense that The US is not seen as ascendant and China is, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that the US is seen as descendant. And in fact, we've often asked a question about which economy is the top economy in the world. And while overall, particularly in Europe and often in Canada, more places will say China than the United States, the opposite tends to be true in the Asia Pacific where more places, including large majorities often in places like Japan and South Korea will say the US. On the US's role and performance in the South China Sea, I cannot remember the last time that we pulled on this. So it's been long enough ago that I don't believe we have any current information about that. Um, It's something we might look into going forward, but it tends to be a relatively low salience issue for places outside of the Asia Pacific. And so we haven't done it on our global poll.
0: Excellent. Um, Well, let me ask you now a question then, Laura, before I ask you what you're reading and streaming based on your survey evidence that you've presented, how should foreign governments seek to work with the administration and Congress? As you pointed out, it's pretty deeply polarized in the United States. This is something that, you know, Canada, matters to Canada, but matters to all the allies, is how do we work with your administration and Congress to get things done, especially when it's so polarized?
1: I think if I had a good answer to that, I would definitely go into consulting in the United States because that is a hard one today. Um, There are a lot of people looking for that. um, And it's a real challenge because as noted, there are very few bipartisan issues. Um, As I mentioned though, the one thing I will say is that there is a bipartisan issue in the US on foreign policy when it comes specifically to being strong on human rights in China. Um, I'm not saying that this should necessarily be what people tackle, but if you're looking for points of overlap, that's one of the very few we found in our polling that Republicans and Democrats largely agree upon. This is to say that Republicans and Democrats um, in the American public, there might still be some more division among Congress people in terms of their opinions, but we poll the public. So that that is one thing I will say that Republican and Democrats in society agree upon.
0: Interesting. And I guess, I mean, when, interpreting from the early polling, the Americans are, just as they want to be seen as a reliable ally, they want their partners like Canada, Australia, Britain to be reliable, reliable allies as well. So that take me into the defense spending and burden sharing. Donald Trump was very uh, forthright in that. And Biden has, has also mentioned it. Yeah. I guess that's something that Americans believe that, that, they're, that they're carrying the heavier part of the burden and want to see the allies do more.
1: I think that that this is somewhat partisan as well. Um, When it comes to issues like NATO, for example, we saw increasing partisan views of NATO over the course of the uh, Trump presidency with Democrats actually becoming more in favor of it as President Trump spoke out against it and Republicans becoming more against it. Um, And I think that's where a bulk of his focus on burden sharing came. And when it came to funding bases um, in South Korea and Japan, We didn't pull on that directly, but other organizations who did found that this also kind of divided the American public. So unfortunately, to some degree at this point in the United States, things messaged by Trump tended to appeal to Republicans and not appeal to Democrats and vice versa now with Biden. So I think it's a difficult thing to figure out how to strike the balance in this country.
0: Which takes us back to that theme you underlined at the outset, the the deep polarization in the United States that affects both domestic policy and foreign policy except in a couple of, of, of a few areas.
1: Absolutely. All right, well, my
0: last question to you is, Laura, what are you reading or streaming these days?
1: <laughs> it's a great question. Um, since it's summer, I've been reading a lot more mysteries. Uh, I'm a big fan of Anthony Horowitz myself. I don't know if anyone else has read any of his books. Um, but my whole family has recently trudged through the Moonlight Murders, which is a, a huge book, but really phenomenal. Um, and I've been reading a lot about toddler behavior, which is probably not fully interesting to your audience, but has definitely consumed a lot of my attention as I have an 18 month old who is increasingly asserting his own will.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's you know, important. I'm, we, we, I'm sure we have those in our audience who are familiar with toddlers and certainly I can remember them in an earlier age and I have a grandson who's a toddler, so I get you entirely. Yeah. And as you said, just, uh, the, the book, the, the series you're reading, the Moonlight,
1: Moonlight just again?
0: Moonlight Murders, all right. Moonlight Murders, excellent summer reading. Uh, Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the uh, CJI webinar, Laura and our audience. As I said, our guest today has been uh, Dr. Laura Silver of the Pew Research Center, and her slides will be posted to the website. And we'll also post a link to Pew because as I pointed out to me, they are the gold standard for looking at attitudes around the world and I used it always in my presentations and it served me extremely well.
1: Thank you. you Thank you for having
0: me. Well, it's been a pleasure. You can find the CJAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked us, give us a rating. We're going to be posting this as a podcast in the coming weeks. You can also find the work of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and my thanks go out to our producer and co-host today, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips, who provides the music for our podcasts. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.